What's next for IT? In today's economy, technology touches every aspect of the day-to-day operations of business. There has never been more pressure on IT to deliver for our organizations. So what can we expect over the next decade? We need to think differently about how we approach our work to continue to thrive into the future. This requires all of us to be intentional in how we look at our role going forward. Smart IT is an approach to getting the important things done by transforming the way we think, work, and lead. And now, let's disrupt the status quo, simplify the complex, and reduce risk the Smart IT way. Hey, hello, Evelina. Glad to have you with us today. Welcome to Smart IT Podcast. Thanks for having me. Ah, so it, once I started this podcast, I said, I've got to have you on this show. Uh, so I, I bumped into you guys at Chai One years ago when I lived in Houston. And uh, I was just blown away about some of the things you were doing. So I think I connected with you on LinkedIn not too uh, long afterwards. And I remember you all these years ago. Uh, some of the things we like to talk about on the Smart IT Podcast is just uh, IT professionals up-leveling their skills and just preparing for the, the next wave. What does the next decade look like for professionals as they improve their skills uh, in analytics um, and business development and team building leadership? And one of the things that I know you guys like to do over there at Chai One is design, especially human-centered design. So I said, I got to have you on the show and I kind of nerd out with you on this particular topic. So I'm glad you are joining me today. I'm very excited to be here and spread the passion and the love for sure. Fantastic. Uh, so you look at the last decade or so of um, IT and all the value it's brought to the business and has businesses um, taken advantage of all the new technological advances. Uh, we got a lot of interesting new things that's powering our, our global economy here. Uh, so I think a lot of people, when they look at IT, they think about application developers, uh, people pecking on the keyboards, uh, putting out new code, new applications on smartphones and other types of devices. But I think a lot of people, even a lot of IT professionals might not realize the amount of work that goes into kind of designing what the experience will look like for everything that's coded. So can you kind of give our audience a little bit of a flavor of like, when you hear the word design uh, in the uh, perspective of coding and application development, the entire life cycle and how we make the digital world go, uh, give us some of your thoughts on, on design um, holistically. Definitely. Uh, there's a lot of um, thought that goes beyond into creating a solution that will be developed through ones and zeros and converted into code. Um, first of all, we have to understand what is it that we're trying to accomplish with our solution? What do our business stakeholders and what do our end users need to experience when they are engaging with um, a software application? We um, need to understand the requirements from the business perspective in terms of where does the data move? What does the data do? How is the data stored, right? All of that has technical implications. But we also need to consider from the point of view of the end users, how do I get my tasks done? Because the end user doesn't necessarily care about where the data are stored. The end user care about, can I do my tasks in the most efficient, effective way that makes me successful at my job? So we have to understand both sides of the equation and the story. And only then when we understand that landscape of what all of the requirements are, 
and there's a lot of work that goes into it and a lot of different roles that are involved in that process. Only then we should be creating the visual experiences of the interface, which end users uh, then engage with. And that is what typically um, stakeholders and IT professionals and anybody who's not really familiar with user experience or design think about when they hear design. Just the look and feel, is it modern? Is it pretty? Does it look engaging and exciting? Yeah. They feel like that is really the design part. But there's a lot of hard work that gets done to get us to that place of when we actually can visualize uh, the experiences and the interactions that are, again, uh, brought to life through the ones and zeros. So you mentioned uh, user experience. So I know you guys have a, a cool shorthand for that, uh, UX. So when I first right. saw that, I had to actually Google that and find out what that was years ago. <laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit about the UX um, uh, kind of domain? Yes, for sure. So a lot of stakeholders are now getting much more uh, familiar with the human-centered design and what UX may imply. So UX stands for user experience. Um, and user experience really isn't just the look and feel of an application, but is the entire experience that somebody may have with a product or even a service. We talk about a customer experience as well. Um, so I one example that I often use is thinking about um, going to an Apple store and buying an Apple device or having it shipped to you. Clearly, I'm a more of an Apple fan <laughs> in this case. Mm -hmm. But um, if any of you ha have had a, the experience of buying a device, unwrapping, you know, taking the lid of the box that nicely mm -hmm. slides out, you know, taking the device out of the box, the device is already charged for you to use, um, and you can begin your experience and interaction with the device. The setup seems easy and seamless. So it's not just the um, experience of the device has applications that help me get done what I want to do, but it's also the packaging, the wrapping, the fact that I can contact customer service very easily if I need to. Uh, all of those components create a pleasant uh, user experience if they are crafted um, to be pleasant. And when businesses don't invest in creating positive and good user experiences, we still have a user experience, except then it becomes negative. Um, and we have gripes and complaints. Right. I'm sure that there are experiences that everybody can lean on in their um, memory when they're on a website and they're trying to do something. And, you know, I'm filling out filling out my address and the form clears does not save my address or I enter the zip code and I have to specify my state. Well, we already have technology that can pre-fill the state based on the zip code and pre-fill the city based on the zip code. Um, so those kind of experiences then become there's minor nuisances, but they are examples of experience that isn't positive user experience. So it's still UX, um, but the negative side of it. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Can you start to think about why do you feel better visiting one website versus another or uh, open up the packaging for one phone versus uh, another? And you start to realize there's a lot going on behind the scenes before you ever got to it. It was just really, really fascinating. You think it just happened by 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 chance? Uh, so as you see organizations and businesses go on this digital transformation um, journey and launch all these initiatives, I see a lot of people talking about okay, we're going to transform our business, 
We're going to digitally transform. We got these initiatives out here. But sometimes I almost think a lot of them don't realize what that means exactly. Someone may just think it's a new version of code and may not think about that entire experience. Can you talk about some of the things you encounter when you have customers who kind of first come in and not really ingrained in UX and what that entails? For sure. Uh, And you uh, reflect the reality of businesses very well. Uh, For many, digital transformation means we're going from a paper process to a digital interaction with something. I mean, having an Excel file is a digital experience. We're not writing things on a paper spreadsheet, um, but that isn't really a true modern revolution. Perhaps in some cases it is. Um, Many times when IT professionals require our services, so my company is um, a consultancy in software development specifically for industrial enterprises, um, a lot of the initiatives for transformation come from IT departments because they want to merge code bases, they need to upgrade their technology because the software uh, security specifications are extremely out of date and they're at risk for security breaches that would compromise their organization. Um, but very often, um, stakeholders approach um, these transformation initiatives with a solution that they already have selected and decided. Oh, we're going to create a timesheet system and we're going to go with, with this vendor, help us implement it. And we sometimes challenge our stakeholders to think about, is the solution that you have already picked truly solving the correct problem that you have? And is the solution that you already picked going to be adopted by your end users? I don't have the specific numbers to quote, uh, but Forbes just last year published a really great article about digital transformation and how and where it fails in that almost half of enterprise employees are now actively resisting technology and actively resisting digital transformation initiatives because those employees are required to learn about five to nine new tools, digital tools each year. Can you imagine for somebody in their 30s, 40s, right, in who spend a lot of time in the workforce, every single year they have to learn multiple new tools to just do their work. That is a really frustrating experience. And humans, all of us, are lazy. Like that's the true nature of human beings, right? We want things as simple, as easy, as efficient, as low cost energy. So if I have to learn new tools to do my job every single year, that becomes a really poor user experience. And employees are actively resisting learning tools. They are, I don't want to call it explicit sabotage, but they are, um, through their resistance, negatively impacting the business. Right. So I've, I've had stakeholders say, well, that's their job. I'm just going to tell them to do it. And employees may go and do and yeah. use the technology. Yeah. Right. But then they will continue to use the shadow system and shadow workarounds that they have created. So we challenge our stakeholders who are going through digital transformation to be human centered or user centered, truly figure out what is it that the end users need? What is it that's going to make them more open and more willing to adopt the technologies that we're putting forward to them? And the answer could simply be a different way to configure the technology and the solution that has already been selected. And sometimes the answer is you need a very different solution than what you have selected. And you need to solve 
a more fundamental problem than what you have decided to solve. Um, so I, we highly advocate for um, understanding not just the business needs, but also the end user needs to make sure that any investment in digital transformation truly pays off as expected. Because without considering the user, adoption is at risk. And then the value of the investment, right, that we're trying to recoup is also um, potentially compromised. So it sounds like we can almost um, conclude from that is like almost bad design or poor design or improper design can almost increase your level of risk. So when the CEO gets up there and talking about this new digital transformation that's going to drive the next three years of growth against their competitors, uh, if you don't have the right team in place using the right methodologies and approach and they're using poor design, they could actually open themselves up to poor economic um, performance in the future. So it's interesting that something that we may think is simple design could actually be a, a, a major risk factor there because uh, yeah. I've seen a lot of um, reboots um, over the years and they seem to be repackaging a lot of things, updating documentation. And it does feel like a lot of these tools we use, the process were reverse engineered to fit the tool and not taking us using into consideration at all. Uh, so it's fascinating to kind of think about poor experiences in the past I've had with systems and realize maybe that that experience could have been better if somebody had thought a little bit better about that. So it's very fascinating. Um, yeah. So listen, yeah, go ahead. Well, I would also add, it is imperative that for anybody who is considering, yes, we need a user-centered point of view on the solution, uh, that it's not the same person picking a solution or developing a solution. Um, so when you have engineers deciding well, I'm just going to integrate these things and I'm going to pop it up and show it to people that will make them their life easier. It may be a very well-intentioned solution, um, but um, it not necessarily truly effective when it is launched. Uh, there are a lot of memes and uh, funny pictures on the internet of engineer designed interfaces yes. yeah. that make sense to them, but they don't make sense to the normal, to the typical end user, right? I often encourage my team members to think about, well, if you've designed this um, screen or this workflow, would your mom be able to figure it out if you were not sitting there with her? And if the answer is no, then I challenge them to go back and revisit. Um, not just revisit from the, how do I display information, but do you truly understand how your parent might engage with this technology? Um, assuming that they understand the work tasks that are, we're trying to accomplish and everything like that. But um, we truly need a certain skill set of um, being able to understand the end user, use certain methods to understand the user, and then create solutions for them. And I challenge that it's not necessarily the same people that write code that should be doing uh, that work. Yeah, it kind of rem reminds me of the, of the early days of the traditional website and then we started getting these smart devices and people were trying to uh, web browse on their phone and found the, the UI very clunky because you didn't have a keyboard or mouse in front of you. So it felt yeah. very different. So people say, okay, we need a mobile uh, native uh, app for this. But I see a lot of uh, new uh, opportunities now where we're going from the smartphone to the, the wearables, like the smart glasses and the watches. So now it's like there's a whole new opportunity for UX and developers to actually improved experience even more. So can you talk about the 
the opportunities from the glasses and the wearables that that's now available to us? So um, the ecosystem of connected devices and creating um, kind of this omnipresent experience and much smoother and better life that's reflected in a lot of sci-fi books and movies. So I think we all have some ideas of how glasses and smartwatches and even other types of sensors on our bodies could um, help with our, uh, enhance our experience. Um, I think regardless of what the technology or the device is uh, to enhance our experience, really the fundamental thing we need to know and understand is the human in that ecosystem, right? What are they trying to do? What experience do they currently have? And what experience do we want to create that's better? And only when we have that landscape and understanding of how are people motivated, what attitudes they have, what pain points they experience in their day, only then we should prototype and test whether a smartwatch or glasses or um, some auditory feedback that we're getting through our headset may be the appropriate solution or um, way to enhance their experience. So I don't necessarily care about um, th the newest gadget and bling. Uh, I care more about what does it really do to create a better experience for me as a human being. Um, okay. So tech is a solution. The, the existence of the human and their experiences, the kind of the foundation in which we can apply technology. Okay, interesting. Uh, talk a little bit about how do you get this, this, this user input, like what the user wants, how the user moves around their environment. In, in the UX, I mean, how do you go out and collect this? Do you interview people? Do you observe them in their, in their work environment? You know, how do you collect this information? Definitely. So <laughs> I could speak hours and hours about yeah, this. Yeah. Our team has... Um, consists of um, master's and PhD level social and behavioral scientists. So social sciences include sociology, psychology, anthropology, uh, and we are trained in a variety of methods of how to study humans. So interviews are some of the ways that we collect information. And to some people, especially outsiders who are not experienced in these methods, yeah. uh, an interview feels like, well, you're just having a conversation with another human being. Asking questions is very simple. I can go and do that. Um, but to a trained professional, interviewing a user about their needs, motivations, attitudes is really an art as much as a science, because we have to make sure that we create a safe space for a person to share with us. Sometimes it's sensitive information. Sometimes it's frustration. Sometimes it's um, challenges that they may be embarrassed about. You know, we don't want to talk to strangers and say, you know what, I really struggle getting my work done because I'm having a really hard time with this um, with this process. I don't understand or I don't know how to use this new device that was given to me. Sometimes people are very vulnerable, right? And there's an art and science to connecting to people at that level and extracting those insights that help us improve uh, the solutions that we have for them. So interviewing is one way to do it. But we also very highly recommend that uh, uh, activities like observations and even time motion studies can provide a lot of information about what works and what doesn't work for people in 
in their workplace or in the space in which they're engaged. So, for example, if I were to ask you, how do you make your coffee? You might tell me you put a filter in your coffee maker, you put, you know, you put the ground coffee and you turn it on and that's it. But if I were to observe you, I might see that, for instance, you uh, pre-wet your coffee filter so that it eliminates some of the paper flavor from your coffee. And I might also notice that you um, mix water from your faucet and from a specific water filter or water bottle. And that enhances, in your opinion, the flavor of the coffee uh, that you get, right? But as humans, we tend to have a lot of micro habits and certain behaviors that we're so used to that sometimes it's really hard to describe them in the interview because it's almost second nature to us, right? But if I am a, a third party observer and I'm watching how you're doing things and I'm documenting, um, I don't have any predisposition or bias to notice or not notice certain things. So that can give me insights. We also, uh, when we observe people, you know, in their home or in their work environment, a lot of the things that we pay attention to are not just what are people doing. We are also paying attention to what other tools, systems, equipment they might be using to do their tasks. We pay attention to the environment in which they work. Is the environment noisy? Is it, um, does it have, you know, varying uh, weather conditions? Uh, I work a lot with industrial clients. So, for example, in nuclear plants, you may have the same kind of user, a security officer, working um, in, in their space when it's 120 degrees out, and they're working in the same space when it's windy, hailing, and wet in the middle of winter. And understanding the reality of that environment helps me uh, advise our clients about what hardware and software needs to be for that end user to uh, be able to to use the, uh, the technology provided for their work. And there's other methods. We have surveys that assess motivations and attitudes that people may show. Uh, we have workshops. We have um, um, kind of proof of concept experiences that we may craft in which people have an opportunity to uh, engage with a prototype experience so that we can see whether the solution we have in mind uh, would truly make the desired impact or whether we need to tweak something before we go and invest into building out a full MVP or even the full release of the product uh, and handing it out to people. And one final thing that I will say about method, because I could speak about this yeah. for hours, and of course yeah. we don't have that much time, <laughs> um, but when we begin to study humans, what you will often find is that what people say and what people do maybe two very different things. And so we use a variety of these kind of methods that are meant to study humans to create a fuller picture and really tease out what levers, what nudges, what motivators do we need to tap into to make sure that when we give somebody a technical solution, they will use it and adopt it as we expect them to, despite of what they say. Yeah, very fascinating. Uh, like I think a lot of people can't appreciate the amount of work that goes into that to make something looks fantastic and seamless later. Because uh, one of the great things about IT is taking a lot of complexity and making it appear like magic with a single button. So 
Every time I yeah. pick up my smartphone, click one button, and then the next day, there's a box dropped off in front of my door. It seems like magic, right? But the number <laughs> it does. of touch points for that yeah. entire process, that entire experience. I mean, somebody had to design each of those different elements to make it work, make it cost effective, make the packaging look right. I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling to see that written or drawn on a, on a board to see what all of that looks like. Um, yep. Now for people who maybe might just be hands on keyboards and may say, you know what, this sounds interesting. I'm used to just coding. Is this a field I can get into? So this, is this something from a career pathing to somebody in IT who maybe just a, a developer, a coder, who says, you know, I may want to step back and look at this the development process from the front end. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, career pathing for uh, the coders over to the design side? Uh, definitely. Uh, I do know of quite a lot of people that choose to transition out who were developers and they wanted to be more at the tip of the iceberg of that user experience. Mm -hmm. As you said, a lot of magic happens through code that we never get to see. And I do appreciate and recognize how much work that might be. And all of that happens behind the scenes. And we appreciate all of that work for sure. Um, but I, I am um, familiar with quite a few folks who wanted to transition into user experience as a field of expertise. Um, the field itself is extremely broad. Um, and sometimes when professionals say, well, I'm a UX practitioner, what they really mean is that they implement front-end designs for a great experience. So they may be creating uh, a website front-end uh, that was designed by somebody else. In other cases, UX practitioner may be a UX designer. So it's a person who visualizes what things may look like through using tools like Adobe XD or Figma but they don't necessarily code the designs that they have created. They may collaborate with a front-end developer who implements those designs. Um, there is a newer role in the field called design technologist. So that is a person who has a lot of um, front-end development experience combined with a lot of front-end design experience where they are designing and implementing some of the designs and they may be responsible for um, incorporating things like accessibility kind of requirements and guidelines and principles into the code. Um, so that is another kind of technology into UX design path that folks can pursue. There's also, of course, UX researcher, content strategist, uh, services design specialist, etc. All of those roles would fall under the very broad term of UX. Um, practitioner. Now, how the other question that a lot of people yeah. ask really is, how do I get into it? There's a variety of resources, and I would recommend um, first to do some exploration and really uh, doing virtual coffee meet and greet with people who are UX professionals to truly understand, you know, is the grass greener on the other side? And yeah. is this the work that they want to do? Um, you have to really understand the lay of the land of what your day-to-day -day would look like and what specific skills may be required for a specific role in the UX field, because again, there are so many of them. Uh, there are a lot of UX uh, mentoring communities. I would um, even highlight uh, ADP list. It stands for Awesome Design People List. It's a free worldwide mentoring 
uh, network. Uh, I've been a mentor on that platform for over a year. And a lot of developers, product owners, product managers, UX designers, UX researchers, all of whom touch the UX discipline, are available there to serve as mentors and engage with professionals who are at various levels of their career. Some of them are very junior and some of them not so much. Um, and there's a lot of things to always learn. So that could be a resource for just getting to meet somebody and learning about the discipline and the field a little bit more. There are also a variety of um, platforms that offer free or very low cost um, materials to learn about the discipline. So um, I believe it's Interactive Design Foundation or IDF. Uh, they offer a lot of courses specifically for folks who want to learn research and design uh, and transition into UX in that regard. Uh, Coursera is another resource that I would highly recommend. Uh, you could audit classes. I believe Google uh, offers UX design fundamentals class, but there's quite a few other uh, large organizations and institutions that offer a similar type of content that is either free or very, very low cost. Um, I do know that there are quite a few UX boot camps. I myself personally am quite skeptical of the quality of the bootcamp experience in many regards, just because there are so many of them and the um, quality of experiences, again, based on my mentoring exposure um, is quite varied. And so I don't know if I would recommend for somebody to spend a lot of money and time getting a bootcamp certification until they have done some other learning opportunities. And again, spoken to quite a few UX professionals to make sure that that is the career path for them. Also, LinkedIn Learning have a lot of um, resources and um, LinkedIn Learning materials, I believe, are um, readily available through a lot of public libraries as well. Um, and that could be another resource to tap into to explore whether that's a space that's interesting. Well, wow, like a lot of resources out there. And it sounds like, uh, I mean, if you're, you're an IT professional today, there's a lot of growth potential a lot of ways to kind of up-level skills across uh, communication skills, teaming differently, applying coding skills and different methodologies um, differently. So it's like, uh, I always say it's always exciting. And I think that the next decade is always going to be something new and challenging for all of us. It's definitely evolving. UX as a discipline has continued to grow. It was called something else in the 70s. It was still there. Um, but new roles and new um, ways of working and doing things continue to emerge even many years later now, so 50 years later. Um, so I, I believe that will continue to be true as we move into the future. I love it. Uh, any uh, parting thoughts uh, for someone who's uh, came in? We got the wow factor, so we pushed a button and they said the experience was fantastic. Uh, and then, of course, we got the people who are doing uh, hands-on keyboard. We got people managing projects. We got our enterprise architects. We got our security professionals. Just a lot of different roles and skills. And sometimes I think we don't have enough. We don't spend enough time talking with among ourselves about the different roles that allowed that single button service or experience to happen. Um, I would almost like to say, let's what, your wow factor. Any uh, examples? Say the last couple of years, you say that's a, impressive. All the work that we did in the background to make that front end look so so seamless. 
not an example that I can pull top of my head that's publicly available. Uh, mm -hmm. I am very proud of the work that my team does um, for, again, a lot of industrial clients. We have software that runs helps run nuclear plants, right? So I find that very exciting that keeps our lights on and keeps our homes warm. And so I'm, I'm proud to be part of, uh, of a team that helps um, the work of um, a lot of industrial staff uh, easier and less frustrating. Uh, you mentioned very different technical skill sets working together and contributing to that wow factor. A lot of things happen behind the scenes and we never get to see it, right? So for me, the user experience and the button that we press that delivers our package that's just the very tip of the iceberg. And I do recognize and celebrate all the magic that happens behind the scenes. What I would encourage anybody working on a software project is to have conversations with their team members, project managers, product owners, um, other developers, backend developers, front-end developers, um, you know, data architects, and have conversations not just at a technical level where does the data move how we're going to store it when are we deploying what's our release schedule those things are important for delivery for for sure but i would encourage to have a conversation about who's the ultimate end user how are we going to know that it's successful i have worked many many times with professionals who are very frustrated that they have spent months or years building solutions just to learn that all of the effort and all of the thinking and creativity that they have invested into a solution failed at launch because nobody bothered to ask who is the end user and why would they need this? And so keeping that end user in mind, even if you're not doing all the research that I've described, and I do hope that you will have somebody on your team with you doing some of that work and creating the interactive and modern and uh, exciting interfaces, but at least think about and get answers to who it is that's ultimately going to touch your product. Uh, and I think that will make the work of the whole team feel even more impactful when you do spend all that effort and there is a wow factor and somebody says, oh, my work is now much smoother and much more amazing. Thank you. So that's my wish and, and parting encouragement. I love it. I love it. Fantastic discussion. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, pretty exciting for the next decade here for IT professionals. Uh, looking forward to uh, new, exciting, you know, what you call it, always something around the corner that we haven't thought about before. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for your time. Hey, thanks everybody for joining us once again for the Smart IT Podcast. Another great conversation with the innovative leaders in the IT profession. Until next time, thank you very much. Thanks for joining another episode of the Smart IT Podcast, where we explore what's next for IT and disrupt the status quo, simplify the complex, and reduce risk together. If you like what you hear, please like, subscribe, and leave your comments. And for more Smart IT wisdom, check out my website at williamreed.info.